This week, Genesis and Party City filed Chapter 11. Travelport seeks to issue $200 million of junior debt, pick interest, and switch base rate to SOFR. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's Deep Tab, we feature a replay from the Reorg Primary Review Series, where Robert Keach, co-chair of Bernstein Shure's Business Restructuring and Insolvency Practice, discusses the past, present, and future of Subchapter 5, the section of the Bankruptcy Code added in 2019 for small business debtor reorganizations, with Harvard Zhang, Associate Editor at Reorg. On a related note, come meet Reorg's team at this year's Turnaround Management Association Conference for Corporate Restructuring Distressed Investing Professionals being held in Las Vegas. TMA Distressed Investing Conference is a preferred meeting place for corporate restructuring distressed investing professionals. Junior colleagues to connect with deal partners, meet with capital providers, and network with the industry's leading professionals. It's Friday, January 20th. Genesis Global, a portfolio company of Digital Currency Group, and DCG CEO Barry Silbert's crypto holding company, filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York on Thursday. Debtors say they intend to seek court approval to conduct a competitive marketing and sell process to sell assets or otherwise raise capital during the Chapter 11 cases. Debtors stress that if the marketing and sale process does not result in the sale of all or substantially all the debtors' assets, the holders of general and secured claims would receive 100% of the equity interest in Holdco, which in turn would own any unsold assets. Discussions have taken place and are continuing between advisors to debtor Genesis Global Capital, parent DCG, and certain ad hoc groups of GGC lenders. Debtors say they will continue to try to broker an agreement in principle among a core group of stakeholders prior to the first day hearing. However, to the extent that agreement is not reached imminently, the debtors say they intend to seek the appointment of a mediator. Debtors also filed a proposed plan of reorganization that they say is intended to provide a transparent path to a confirmable plan of reorganization, even if the debtors are not able to reach a global resolution with DCG entities and the ad hoc groups. Under the proposed plan, holders of general and secured claims against the debtors would receive a combination of available cash and other assets, equity interests and hold costs subject to dilution by a management incentive plan, and GUC trust units entitling holders to receive their pro rata share of proceeds from certain causes of action and other claims to debtors, including proceeds from a DCG note, DCG loans, avoidance actions against various parties and other claims against the DCG entities in Gemini. Party Goods retailer Party City Holdco Inc. filed for Chapter 11 on Tuesday in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas. Debtors described their Chapter 11 case as a pre-negotiated case having entered bankruptcy under an RSA with an ad hoc group of holders of more than 70% of the company's senior secured first lien notes. Debtors say they expect to complete the restructuring in the second quarter of 2023 with a May 17 outside date to go effective. According to the debtors, the RSA contemplates an expedited restructuring to substantially reduce the company's debt and optimize its capital structure and liquidity. The RSA provides for a $150 million new money dip facility backstop by the ad hoc group and equitization of approximately $912 million in first lien notes, subject to dilution by an equity rights offering and an amount and discount to plan value to be determined. The new equity note for note holders would also be subject to dilution by a MIP and any dip equitization. ABL facility claims would either be paid in full in cash through refinancing or receive participation rights in a new ABL exit facility. Treatment of unsecured claims remains to be, ter- to be determined. The $150 million dip is open to all first lien note holders who must sign onto the RSA in order to participate in the dip and is backstopped by the first lien note holder ad hoc group. Debtors sought access to $75 million on interim basis. Debtors have $23 million in cash on hand as the petition date. 
The RSA contemplates an 8% commitment premium for the dip lenders. In exchange for their agreement to backstop the dip, the Idaho Group members would receive either the option to equitize some or all of their dip claims under a plan on the same pricing terms as the rights offering, or alternatively, a 10% cash premium. At a first-day hearing in which Minority First Lien Lender, Mudrick Capital, objected to the dip, Judge David Jones granted the dip only after the ad hoc note holder group as dip lenders agreed to amend the RSA to carve out Mudrick Capital or any party that becomes a party of the RSA to preserve certain rights for such joining parties. Travelport is seeking majority consent from super-priority lenders to have the option to pick interest payments through maturity, switch base rate to SOFR from LIBOR, and authorize $200 million of junior debt, according to sources. However, neither an ad hoc group of super-priority term lenders that hold more than 50% of the tranche with a co-op agreement in place, nor an ad hoc group of super-priority first-link crossholder group supports the amendment, the sources said. If the amendment passes, consenting lenders would have a coupon boost to S plus 1,000 bips in PIC or S plus 700 bips in cash, in addition to receiving the pro-rata share of $10 million of a consent fee unavailable to non-consenting lenders. Travelport may also elect to pick half of the consenting loan consenting loans at the pick rate and pay interest at a cash rate on the other half of the consenting loans. Meanwhile, those who do not consent would have their coupon rate switch to S plus 875 bips in pick through September instead of L plus 150 bips in cash and 725 bips in pick. And after September, the pick rate would drop to S plus 700 bips, sources said. Top road stories this week included... Bed Bath & Beyond, Party City expect to file for Chapter 11 in coming weeks. Nautical Solutions, former brands, file Chapter 11 in busy week. Sort of super priority lenders ask court to dismiss renewed suit over up-tier transaction. Mallinckrodt's post-reorg flexibility continues to be limited. Rite Aid has meaningful capacity to continue sale leasebacks, receivable sales. Update on Multiplan, Carter's Herbalife, Transocean, W&T Offshore, our primary review. Just Energy seeks rehearing a Fifth Circuit abstention decision at ERCOT dispute. Judge Goldblatt deviates from Delaware common practice, directing Cabbage to permit release opt-out for gucks who vote in favor of plan. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with The Week Ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Ta. The Week Ahead is filled with several cryptocurrency bankruptcy court matters, so let's get started. On Monday, January 23rd, the Genesis Global Capital debtors will be in court for their first day hearing. The cryptocurrency lenders file for Chapter 11 Thursday evening, January 19th, to pursue a consensual restructuring through a dual-track sale and equitization plan. The debtors will be seeking operational interim relief without any need for dip financing. Monday, we'll also see Bitcoin Miner and Mining Service provide a core scientific in court for their operational second day hearing. The debtors will seek relief on several matters, including critical vendor and cash management relief. Also on Monday, January 23rd, in litigation coverage of First Energy Corporation, opening arguments will begin in the RICO criminal trial against former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and other defendants involved in passage of nuclear subsidy House Bill 6 that would benefit the company's nuclear plants. Turning to Tuesday, January 24th, several cryptocurrency debtors will be in court. The Celsius debtors will ask for relief to return collateral to institutional borrowers to close out those loans, along with relief to return post-petition cryptocurrency transfers made by customers and to perform under a Flare Networks grant agreement. An ad hoc group of borrowers say the debtor should be required to return collateral to retail borrowers upon loan repayment in the same way. That same day, the Voyager debtors will be seeking a 60-day extension of their exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods to March 3rd and April 30th, respectively. The extensions, if granted, will facilitate their sale to Binance US. The Celsius debtors will be making an appearance in the Voyager hearing that day to get automatic stay relief to file an adversary proceeding in their own bankruptcy case against Voyager to recover $7.7 million in preferential transfers. 
Also on Tuesday, January 24th, the all-year holdings debtors will be asking for a third extension of their exclusivity periods to March 31st and April 28th, respectively, as part of their efforts to confirm an amended plan based on their latest settlement of plan-related issues with sponsor paragraph partners and the notes trustee. Moving to Wednesday, January 25th, the foreign representative for Chapter 15 de debtor, Credito Real, will be asking for approval of a recently announced stocking horse agreement with Bepensa Capital to purchase the debtor's 95% equity interest in indirect U.S. subsidiary Credito Real USA Finance, along with other equity interests held by another party. The bid is to purchase a total of 98% of the existing equity interest for a base purchase price of $60.5 million. That's it for me in Los Angeles on this Friday, January 20th. Now back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a replay from the New York Primary Review series, where Robert Cage, co-chair of Bertstein Shurer's Business Restructuring Insolvency Practice, discusses the past, present, and future of Subchapter 5, the subchapter of the Bankruptcy Code added in 2019 for small business debtor reorganizations. Welcome to Turnaround Time, a podcast from the New York City chapter of the Turnaround Management Association. We feature insights and conversations with our diverse and talented members who represent the different aspects of corporate renewal. This episode is being jointly produced with our friends at Reorg, a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics, and a corporate sponsor of the Turnaround Management Association. We welcome their support. I'm Mark Hirschfield, Chair of the Business Restructuring and Bankruptcy Group at Royer Cooper Cohn Braunfeld, a law firm with offices in New York and Philadelphia offering practical business acumen, legal expertise, and entrepreneurial passions. For this episode, I'm pleased to present attorney Bob Keach, co-chair of the Business Restructuring and Insolvency Practice Group at Bernstein Schur, and a former president of the American Bankruptcy Institute. He also served as co-chair of the ABI Commission to study the reform of Chapter 11. He is joined today by Reorg Associate Editor Harvard Jung for reports on corporate bankruptcies. Together, they will explore Subchapter 5 of the Bankruptcy Code, added in 2019 for small business debtor organizations. They will also explore ways to make corporate organizations more successful, efficient, and affordable for American small and medium-sized businesses. You can learn more about Bob and Harvard at turnaround.org slash NYC, but for now, let's listen to their conversation. Bob, it's an honor to speak with you. And uh, for those that I haven't met or spoken with, my name is Harvard John. I break news on large cap chapter 11 cases for reorg research. And to do this interview, I had to do homework on subchapter V, small business bankruptcies, and I can confirm it is very interesting. For this podcast, we're going to focus on hot topics, but why don't we start with a quick history lesson, Bob? How did the, the uh, SBRA, the Small Business Restructuring Act, come about? What is subchapter V, and what are the key differences between subchapter V and large cap, ordinary, regular way, chapter 11? Sure. Yeah, let's do the history lesson first on, on subchapter five. So really the issues around small business and whether chapter 11 fits small business have been percolating for quite some time, but probably reached you know a peak with the work of the ABI's commission to study the reform of chapter 11. That commission operated roughly from 2010 to the issuance of its report in 2014. And the testimony before the ABI Commission made it very clear that from the standpoint of restructuring professionals and judges, the then existing small business provisions of Chapter 11 simply didn't work. And they were not working to the point where prospective debtors 
were not simply failing in the filings they did choose to make. They were simply avoiding filing Chapter 11 altogether. Um, they were, frankly, running away from the statute. That was largely because the practice under the existing small business provisions and what we'll call regular Chapter 11 were uh, completely unsatisfactory to small debtors. Most cases were fast tracks to liquidation, um, and they were at least fast tracks to the existing ownership, uh, losing their control over the assets. So the it was pretty clear to the commission, which I co-chaired, that we needed to do something quite different about small business in order to give small business and, frankly, even lower middle market companies a better chance to reorganize. So that was the impetus, was the testimony before the ABI commission. There were really a couple of different approaches to small business bankruptcy, one by the National Bankruptcy Conference and the ABI commission recommendation. And I would say the SBRA, or what we now call Subchapter 5, was really a product of the merger of those two approaches. So Subchapter 5 has the architecture um, that the NBC was in favor of, and what I would refer to as the Chapter 12 or Chapter 13 architecture. And it has the sort of underlying principles that were really critical to the commission. And those principles were really one that there be efficiency, in other words, that the process be relatively low cost and fast, that the system work well both to primarily reorganize business, but also to sort non-feasible debtors and to move those debtors to Chapter 7 as appropriate, to give owners an incentive to file in the first place by allowing them to retain their equity interest in the business and therefore modify the absolute priority rule to allow that. And we also wanted to remove what we'll call litigation incentives. So a big part of that was not having Section 1129A10 apply to the confirmation process. That section requires that if you have impaired classes, that at least one impaired class must vote to accept the plan. The problem is that as you simplify capital structures, that right and creditors can become an absolute veto. And so it was a real bar to getting cases confirmed. You know, some of the sort of underlying key principles, and those were built into the statute. So that was the groundwork. The statute was passed and would have been effective and became effective actually in February of 2020, the hard work being done the previous year. Importantly, the bill passed in combination with two other statutes, one to increase debt thresholds for the farm relief bill, Chapter 12 to 10 million, and also a very important bill that rendered the bankruptcy code less discriminatory against veterans. And those three bills passed as a package. The original debt limit for SBRA for subchapter five was roughly 2.8, 2.9 million, which was the threshold in the old small business provision. We had hoped to get that amount to 10 million at the time um, and compromised, frankly, to get the bill passed as part of that package. You know, as we all know what happened in the early winter of 2020 um, into the early spring, and when the pandemic became an obvious reality, several of us reached out to our senators. Uh, I give particular credit to my hometown senator, Senator King, and indicated that we needed to raise the debt ceiling, the eligibility ceiling on subchapter five, 
because the pandemic was going to hammer small business, as it, of course, did. And so in March of that year, right, we had the first increase in the debt limit to $7.5 million. There's no magic to that number other than that it was a compromise number between you know, various parties. Um, it happens to be halfway between 5 and 10, so that'll tell you the science of it. But it was an important increase because it did bring under the possible umbrella of sub-5 many more small businesses. Uh, that debt limit increase has now been increased a couple of times, and most recently, um, there is a two-year extension. Um, we continue, frankly, to have at least that increase uh, made permanent and hopefully, again, bumped to a $10 million threshold. But that's how the the bill got started, and since then, it's frankly been a, a pretty unmitigated success story, and we can talk about that as we continue to chat. Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the differences, like what features that Step 5 have in uh, maybe regular way, Chapter 11? Sure. Doesn't. Yeah, there are some very important differences. Some I just mentioned, but let me highlight them. But let me talk about the first. The important similarities are that Subchapter 5 is a debtor in possession statute, and people should understand that debtor in possession is in control in Subchapter 5 as in a regular 11. One of the key differences, though, is there is this new character called the Subchapter 5 trustee. The Subchapter 5 trustee doesn't look anything like the other trustees and the other chapters, frankly. And the principal duty of the Subchapter 5 trustee is to facilitate a plan of reorganization where one is feasible. Subchapter 5 trustee is also somewhat the eyes and ears of the court and can certainly give his or her opinion on issues like feasibility, for example. But the primary job of that trustee is to assist debtors who have reasonable prospects for reorganization in that reorganization. So that's definitely a key difference. The other key difference is that it is presumed um, in a subchapter five case that there will be no creditors committee, right? So the default is no creditors committee. Um, a creditors committee can be appointed for cause, and that has happened, but rarely. Uh, the only instance I know where it happened was really to continue a creditors committee in a case that was amended to sub five as opposed to being a traditional chapter 11. But it is possible, and I understand there is a somewhat larger sub five case proceeding now, I think in Delaware, where a committee is likely if, if it hasn't already been appointed. So um, that option exists, but the default again is no committee. That was consistent with this desire to lower costs. And the compensation, of course, is the supervision provided by the sub-5 trustee. Other key differences, as I said, are 1129A10 does not apply. So you can confirm a sub-5 plan without an accepting impaired class. There's a modification to the absolute priority rule so that in the instances where debtors meet the special cram-down rules of subchapter 5, Existing equity interest holders can retain those interests. And then there is a new safe harbor mechanism for cram down, um, which essentially, again, borrows from, I would say, you know, chapter 12 and chapter 13, which provides that one option is for sub five debtors to devote 100% of their projected disposable income, and we'll get to that meaning in a bit, um, over a three or up to five year period. And if they do that, and they successfully do that, then you can confirm a plan and modify the absolute priority rule. And it gives you, again, essentially 
a means forward simply by devoting what in a business case would be 100% of net operating income over a three to five year period. There are you know, differences in terms of when the discharge is received by the debtor in consensual plans that can be at confirmation or on the effective date. Um, in non-consensual plans, that is when payments are completed, which is somewhat more of a parallel with, as I said, chapter 12 and chapter 13. But I would return to the basic point because I, th- I think it's one that sometimes is misunderstood. Subchapter 5 is very much a chapter 11 case, right, with a debtor in possession. So the start of those cases look like, you know, big brother chapter 11 cases. You have first day motions, you have, you know, permissions you need to get from the court and, and you're operating a business moving forward and for the most part. Right. Just also so interesting that the law became effective just as COVID was starting to wreak havoc in the U.S. And I would also note that Reorg actually reported on the efforts of the, um, the American Bankruptcy Institute to study the reform of Chapter 11 eight years ago in 2014. And Bob was the co-chair of that commission. So I would like to think that we go way back. Um, <laughs> let's talk about eligibility. It's come up a fair amount of times, Bob. Uh, what notable cases disputes and rulings have we seen regarding you know what companies qualify for chapter five and let's start with the, the requirement of uh, commercial and slash business activity yeah so let's, let's look i mean the basic eligibility rules first which are you have to be engaged in quote commercial or business activity there you know at least 50 percent of the debt has to be commercial debt right and as I said, there is, you know, there's a limit. So you cannot have aggregate, non-contingent, liquidated, non-insider debt, right, in excess of 7.5 million. So approaching that differently, the debt ceiling in aggregate is 7.5 million. But in getting to that number, you exclude contingent liabilities, unliquidated liabilities, and insider debt, right? So you can obviously have considerably more than 7.5 million if you have more contingent and insider and unliquidated debt. So those are the basic eligibility requirements. But let's focus on the one we talked about and which generated, I think, some unnecessary controversy. And I think seems to be settling out. And that is the requirement that the debtor be engaged in, quote, commercial business or commercial activity, right? I can tell you the drafts people of the statute intended that section to be very, very broad. In other words, we intended that there not be eligibility battles. And the reason for that is consistent with our overall purpose. One of the reasons we got rid of 1129A10, and by the way, there's a movement by to eliminate that generally, even in large chapter 11 cases. But one of the reasons we eliminated it is that it was responsible for all kinds of satellite litigation in small and middle market chapter 11 cases, right? Uh, largely uh, for the ways people tried to get around it, right? So Debtors would try to create classes that, you know, by splitting up unsecured debt classes, uh, creditors would object to that. Uh, they would fight, you know, debtors would try to engage in nominal impairment. There would be fights about whether that impairment was technical impairment or not impairment. And, and so you had all this sort of litigation around stuff that doesn't ultimately matter to creditors, really. In other words, whether the debtor can succeed and pay them over time or even more importantly to stakeholders like employees who just want to keep their jobs. So one of the key goals of the draft people was let's eliminate litigation, right, over satellite stuff. That was also true in eligibility. So we drafted it very, very broadly. 
Unfortunately, a couple of early decisions focused on the engaged in business part um, without sort of continuing down the sentence and looking at engaged in commercial activity. So there were some early cases where debtors filed where the business had ceased operating. And I think it also appeared more often in cases filed by individuals. And it's important to note that individuals are eligible where the business you know, that they had been engaged in had ceased and their commercial activity was working their way out of, say, guarantees of business debt, right? And there was an early decision that suggested that, that those kinds of debtors were not, quote, engaged in commercial or in businesses or commercial activity. The cases that followed, I think, looked at the breadth of that statutory language, and I think have generally gotten it right, which is they found that individuals working out things like you know, business guarantees are eligible for the statute. And as one of the drafts people, I can tell you, I, I think that's the right result. It's important to add, though, that just being eligible doesn't mean you'll confirm a plan or successfully emerge, right? What we were trying to do was not have, you know, entry fights over peripheral issues. But, you know, those cases may or may not succeed. The issue here was let's not fight about whether you should be here or not. But, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. Um, again, it's consistent with lower the costs, lower the amount of satellite litigation, and get to the fundamental point. And the fundamental point from our standpoint was, is this a debtor with a reasonable prospect of, of rehabilitation or organization? And if so, let's get to that. If not, then let's convert that case and move it out of the system as efficiently as possible. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Founded in 2013, Reorg has changed the way financial and legal professionals access complex and opaque business information. Reorg combines reporting with financial and legal analysis, along with machine learning and natural language processing applications, to offer a holistic view of topical situations in real time. With offices on three continents, Reorg serves 25,000 professionals across the world's leading hedge funds, asset managers, investment banks, law firms, and financial advisors, helping them make better business investment and advisory decisions. Learn more about Reorg today at reorg.com. Staying on the topic of eligibility, Bob, and as you mentioned, another area that we've seen some action is the debtor being an affiliate of public company. And just generally for some bigger subchapter V cases, there's also the issue with you know the debt being held by insiders or being contingent liabilities. Please tell us about some notable cases and maybe what the takeaway is. Sure. I mean, I think it's clear that we intended, the original statute intended to eliminate affiliates of public companies, right? Turned out there was a, you know, a small opening for, for that that was also, we hope, closed by the most recent amendment to the statute, so, which will further this idea of not having affiliates in public companies. I think what some people have seen as an eligibility issue is not really an eligibility issue. In other words, some people are troubled by the fact that there are come some somewhat, quote, larger subchapter five cases, right? Well, the way you get a large subchapter five case is you have a debtor with lots of contingent or insider debt, right? Um, because that debt is excluded. There's, there's a reason, there are good reasons for that. You know, one is that in small, closely held companies, the equity owners tend to be lenders to their own companies. And often those loans are, you know, really in place of equity contributions. That's just the way they're structured. 
and so we didn't want to exclude those people from because the the owners had tried to bail out the business. More importantly, you didn't want to disincentivize, you know, owners from trying to bail out their businesses. So there were good reasons for those carve-outs. But obviously, in a particular case, that can create a rather large sub five debtor. Um, the first example was a uh, Delaware case called RGN, where I, I would, the a company that very much resembled WeWork or you know similar kind of real estate-based office-sharing companies, you know, filed a sub five for its parent and a couple of affiliates. The way that structure worked was there was a holding company parent, lots of individual debtors, and, and really kind of like a building per debtor sort of situation. And in many cases, they, you know, they were just leasing property and buildings that they were then subleasing under their operation or licensing under their operation. And the reason the parent was able to file, even though it was a guarantor of millions and millions of dollars of debt issued by the affiliates was it was all obviously contingent, right? The guarantee had not been called. There were also issues around insider debt. And so they tried to start that case as a subchapter five and then tried to get the court to issue an injunction against landlord or other action against non-debtor affiliates who you know had either leases or landowning. When that injunction was denied, right, the only option available to the company was to file the other affiliates as pressure mounted. And going back to the one sort of part of the eligibility definition we had mentioned is that in getting to the debt ceiling, you have to aggregate the debt of affiliates who are, who are debtors, right? So once you add enough debtors, right, and the number goes above seven and a half, you're no longer eligible. And it's important to note, once you do that, everybody's ineligible, right? The original set doesn't get preserved. Everybody becomes ineligible. So that attempt failed. Um, there are a couple of others. There's one, I think, pending again in Delaware now involving, you know, again, a situation of a large amount of insider or, con- or contingent debt. Um, and I think parties are working through that case. I would add those aren't cases of ineligible debtors filing. Those are cases of eligible debtors filing and people just not liking the eligibility rules. Does that suggest that, you know, future legislature should tweak the eligibility requirements? I don't think so, because I do think these cases are so rare as to be notable, but not, frankly, much of an impact on the sub five system generally. And my impression, honestly, is that the courts and the parties in those cases are handling them in the right way. So. I worry, frankly, less about that issue. Um, The other eligibility issue that's popped up, and we might as well mention it, is there have been instances where parties have attempted to dismiss subchapter five cases for bad faith, Um, the most notable of which were the, you know, collection of Alex Jones companies, you know, around Infowars and particularly around the litigation um, that arose out of, you know, his somewhat nefarious, not somewhat, completely nefarious claims about Sandy Hook. I would simply add about those cases is that subchapter five is a chapter 11 case. Chapter 11 jurisprudence has developed a, you know, a doctrine that does not allow filing to quote in bad faith. In that respect, sub five cases are no different than regular chapter 11 cases. And the fact that Alex Jones and his affiliates chose subchapter five is not an indictment of subchapter five. It's And I think those cases, again, are being handled perfectly well by the parties in the courts. For sure. I just want to note that Bob was part of the, Bob contributed to subchapter B becoming effective. And it is so interesting to hear about the good intentions that was put into 
the law that was the, the statute. So it's very, really interesting. And Bob, on the issue of the uh, $7.5 million debt limit to qualify for subchapter five from a legislative perspective, what can we expect after June 2024 when it's, you know, scheduled? Sure. Well, I can tell you the, the many, many people, and I'm certainly not the only one. You know, this was a fantastic team effort. And, you know, none of this would have happened without the efforts of many other people. And most notably, I would mention uh, Bill Brandt of DSI, who was critical to the legislative effort. What would I expect to happen? I, I, I can tell you that people involved in the statute have worked very hard, first, to have at least the existing debt limit made permanent so that this statute moves forward as it is. Personally, I would like to see the debt limit move to 10 million with the same qualifiers. That would make the statute parallel with Chapter 12, which has a $10 million debt limit. And the reason that debt limit was raised in 2019. It was simply to make more farms eligible for the important relief that bill provided, farms and fishermen, by the way. And, you know, the, the same rationale applies in sub five. It's working. Um, we haven't really talked about the stats yet, but it's working and, and we'd like it to work for more people, right? And when the ABI commission uh, talked about uh, small and middle uh, market enterprises or mid-sized enterprises, so-called SMEs, we sort of defined that limit at $10 million and down. And there was a sort of natural break in the data um, at 10 million. So I think that's a logical number and hopefully we can get there. But first and foremost, we'd like to not keep going through having to extend the debt limit. So I'd like to get it made permanent. Makes sense. Bob, one last interesting point on eligibility. There was a case earlier this year where the judge revoked the debtors of Chapter 5 election. Can you tell us more about that and what's your take on the issue? I'm just curious. Sure. Uh, National Small Business Alliance was a somewhat interesting case factually, but what you had to boil it down was a situation where the debtor, you know, at least according to the published opinion, and I assume the record completely supports it, um, was not diligently prosecuting a plan, right? It had missed its original deadline, been given extensions, but simply wasn't moving a plan forward in, in, in what the court and the parties believe was a situation where a reorganization was feasible, right? And the remedies when that happens that are inside of Subchapter 5 for a reason. Um, and let me back up for a second and say one of the important distinctions that we didn't mention between, say, Regular 11 and Sub 5 is that in Subchapter 5, only the debtor can file a plan, right? There is no expiration of exclusivity that allows other people to file plans. In addition, only the debtor can modify a plan, right? And those were important protections and were built into the statute um, in order to incentivize people to use the statute. Remember, our problem was people were not filing. They were running away from the statute. Um, so coming back to National Small Business Alliance, you had this debtor not prosecuting a plan. So the, the remedies that would exist under sub five, and again, some of these are particular to sub five, would be one, you could convert the case to a seven, right? You could also dispossess the debtor's management and allow the sub five trustee to run the company. Um, by the way, in conversion, you could have allowed the Chapter 7 trustee to operate the business temporarily while, say, then selling it as a going concern. You know, a 7 conversion doesn't mean you shut the business down immediately. You could have authorized the Sub-5 trustee to take over for the debtor, dispossessing the debtor. You could have expanded the powers of the Sub-5 trustee within the, the strictures of the statute. Now, none of those things 
would have allowed the filing of a plan by somebody other than the debtor, but they would have allowed accomplishing essentially the same result through going concern transactions, for example. What the judge did in National Small Business Alliance, and let me add quickly, I thoroughly understand her frustration, right? The idea is you have a business here that could be saved, that's employing people, that has other interests, and a debtor that doesn't seem to be able to get out of its own way, either out of incompetence or ill will. I mean, who knows? The remedy that she chose, though, was to revoke the subchapter five election, right? The way you get into sub five in the first place is you check a box on the petition that elects into sub five. And that means you're not having a regular 11. If you're under the old debt limit, by the way, not checking the box would mean you would go mandatorily into the old statute, which is probably malpractice. But in any event, she chose to revoke the election. She conceded that that remedy was not in subchapter five, right? Now, there's no bar to it either, but it's simply not there, right? Uh, And when you say that only the debtor can file a plan um, in sub five, I mean, that's a pretty strong message. Um, and eventually landed on 105A to find the power to do that. Again, understand the frustration, think the decision is just wrong. It was clearly not intended that revocation should be able to occur unilaterally. Debtors can change their minds. But we think allowing the court to revoke the election is a really dangerous precedent. Because again, you're trying to encourage people to use the statute and you have to put yourself in the position of debtors counsel advising the business pre-filing. And the more things you have to warn people about that might happen um, that would result in their loss of control, the less likely it is you're going to have a filing. So, uh, you know, I do think, and I I actually um, have had a discussion with the judge who wrote that opinion. I I completely understand the frustration. It may be that in a subsequent technical amendments bill, I could be persuaded that there should be an occasion where the sub five trustee can file a plan if certain criteria are met, in other words, the debtor unjustifiably refuses to prosecute, the case is feasible, you know, a confirmed plan is the best interest of all stakeholders, right? And the case would otherwise be converted or dismissed. You know, there may be um, a legislative fix there, but I would ask the judges to be patient and let a legislative fix occur, even when they're frustrated with debtors who don't perform the way they're supposed to. Makes sense. Very interesting. Moving on from eligibility, another interesting issue that came up was debt dischargeability. What kind of the debtor can rid of to have a clean slate? Bob, tell us what important cases we've seen and your view on that. Sure. This is not really an issue, but it's become one. So let me say what I mean by that. The statute, I think, is abundantly clear about this. The, the issue really is this. In 523, the general non-dischargeable, so importantly, we're talking here about dischargeability of particular debt, not discharge generally. But in Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code, there, you know, for individual debtors, there are various exceptions to whether certain debts are dischargeable, right? One of the obvious examples is debt that arises out of, you know, certain fraudulent activities, for example. So individual debtors are subject to a potentially narrower discharge. In other words, particular debts might be determined to be non-dischargeable as a consequence of, you know, the court finding certain facts regarding those debts. And generally that process is, you know, creditors um, asked, you know, bring actions and before the court to have those debts determined to be non-dischargeable. If they're successful, it means the debtor's discharge has certain holes in it, right? And if you're a diligent creditor and want to pursue the debtor post-bankruptcy, you're free to do that. I can tell you that in 40 years of experience, 
I think every creditor who's ever done that has probably found it to be a futile exercise because debtors don't generally get lots more money that they expose to their creditors after they emerge from bankruptcy, but it's, it is what it is. Entity debtors, corporations, partnerships, LLCs are not subject to the, and a regular 11 are not subject to those things, right? We had no intention of changing that result in subchapter five. And the bankruptcy courts who have looked at this, both before and after the Fourth Circuit's decision in Cleary Packaging, which we'll talk about in a second, have found that the clear, plain meaning of Subchapter 5 is that entity discharge is unaffected, right? That entities are not subject, for example, to the fraud exception to um, dischargeability. The Fourth Circuit, in a case called Cleary Packaging, ignored those very well-reasoned bankruptcy decisions and ignored what I think is that clear, plain meaning of the statute. I mean, they literally ignored a section of the statute that I think is dispositive, and found that entities were subject to 523-type dischargeability exceptions. It's the only decision I know that says that. A subsequent decision in Texas is a thorough and, I think, complete and comprehensive critique of the Fourth Circuit decision, pointing out why it was wrong and pointing out why even its purpose argument was wrong. And I think that's probably the more dangerous part of the Fourth Circuit decision in the sense that they found what they perceived to be an ambiguity in the statute by ignoring part of the statute, and then proceeded to resolve that ambiguity by determining what they felt must have been Congress's purpose in expanding dischargeability for entities. And the reason for that was they said, well, you know, by modifying the absolute priority rule and providing other, you know, debtor rights in the statute, Congress must have expanded this entity dischargeability in order to balance um, the rights of creditors and debtors, as if some rebalancing was necessary. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that the SBRA is the rebalancing. Prior to that time, we had total creditor and control kind of situations in these cases. And, you know, depending on your persuasion, you might think that's okay, but it doesn't work very well as a reorganization statute. So Congress already did the rebalancing. And from my standpoint, it's dangerous if courts decide they need to do more rebalancing by inventing purposes that didn't exist. But I can tell you from the standpoint of all the drafts people I know, there was no intention to expand entity dischargeability. I think the statute's really clear about this. I hope the Fourth Circuit decision, you know, is only persuasive in the Fourth Circuit and everybody else follows, I think, the far better reasoned opinions of the bankruptcy judges. Interesting. And just for our listeners, the, the case that Bob referenced in Texas, it's uh, ReGFS Industries, if you want to take a look. And obviously, what creditors get as recovery as part of the Subchapter 5 plan is very important. Bob, what, what disputes or questions have been raised about creditor recovery? You know, what, what is the loss day and what earnings metric we should use, etc.? Sure. I, I think the important thing is, again, one of the options in sub five, this is not mandatory, and I think some people have misread this as well. And what one of the options in subchapter five in order to get a cram down is the debtor can devote 100% of its projected disposable income to fund payouts to uh, creditors, particularly unsecured creditors. Uh, and if they do that, they don't need creditor votes to confirm a plan or to retain their equity. Uh, one of the issues that's come up is does that mean? that the plan needs to be adjusted if the debtor's NOI goes up or down. And, and the important issue here is the answer to that is no. The phrase is projected disposable income. So what the debtor has to do is establish projections. 
and then to set a fixed payment based on those projections that then gets paid. So the debtor takes the risk that its projections are over, overly optimistic, but it also gets the benefit of you know an increase. Now, that doesn't mean that creditors couldn't negotiate a consensual plan with a debtor that provided for you know adjustment based on actual net you know uh, NOI. You certainly could do that, right? But the the default provision doesn't do that. Uh, in terms of you know how our credit is doing, I mean, first let's talk a little bit about the stats. The early data, and again, it was you know it's early; it's a couple of years into the after the first passage of the statute, and we have the pandemic right covering that entire period. So, who knows what what impact that has had? But the early data is first that confirmation rates in subchapter five cases are on a comparative basis very high. You're talking about you know sixty plus percent of cases achieving confirmed plans and you know a dismissal rate that's relatively low but frankly high enough that I'm encouraged that the sorting function is actually happening the cases are pretty cheap you know the average admin cost in these cases is you know four figures not five and so that's good and the confirmation time is six months or less for the most part you know, I'd actually like to see that shorten a little bit even, and I think it will as, as procedure and process in these cases is routinized and as people better understand what their rights, relative rights are, right? The way effective negotiations happen is both sides have a little leverage, everybody understands their rights, and you, know, you get sort of to the point. So the early numbers are showing that the statute is radically successful. The one piece of information we're still waiting on is you know what are the percentage recoveries to creditors? In part because remember these are three to five year plans, right? And so we haven't actually gotten mm-hmm. to the end of year three on any of these plans yet. We're getting there, and so hopefully the next good data set um, will tell us something about you know the percentages of returns to creditors. Anecdotally, what I I understand they're certainly much higher than what would have occurred in liquidation. Remember, you still have to meet the best interest of creditors test. You still have to prove that your plan is going to pay more than would be achieved in liquidation. But early returns are that, you know, debtors are being successful in meeting their plans. I mean, that does lead us to, you know, naturally into one other, I think, underappreciated aspect of sub-5, right? There's both a creditor protection and a debtor opportunity built into sub-chapter 5 in terms of the plan confirmation. Um, The standard, um, you know, you have to prove that you can, you know, meet your payments under the plan. If the court can't find that that's the case. It's required in the plan, in other words, that that's a near certainty, it's required that the plan include an alternative remedy for creditors if the debtor is unable to complete its payments. And the courts have been split on what that remedy needs to look like. Some courts have said, well, you can just return creditors to their state law rights, and that's sufficient. Other courts have required more than that. But frankly, I think debtors are missing an opportunity here. Part of the genesis of that provision was that in in the olden days, in middle market chapter 11, standalone Chapter 11 cases, back when we had those such things with standalone plans, um, it was pretty common to build in a sort of toggle to sale provision so that if the, the payout, the earnout sort of structure didn't work, you know, there'd be a going concern sale transaction that had been pre-baked into the plan, including you know, pre-approved bid procedures, you know, sale free and clear provisions, et cetera. And so I do think that more sub five debtors ought to think about toggle to sale provisions, either the business as a going concern or partial asset sales 
as a way to satisfy the requirement of an alternative remedy. So that's something I would look for development on in the future. Makes sense. Uh, it, it's it's been almost three years since Subchapter Five became effective as a tool for small businesses to find a new beginning. What what features in the statute, the Subchapter Five statute, have not been used, but you would like to see utilized? Well, one is the one I just mentioned. The, the other, I think, one feature, one we consider to be an important feature, which I think has been underutilized in certain parts of the country or is still being figured out is the status conference requirement. What we built into Subchapter 5, a mandatory status conference early in the case, right? And one of the reasons for doing that was I think there was this misconception, and it certainly came out in the commission testimony. And I remember as being a misconception of the old small business provisions. There's this misconception that small business cases are always the same and they don't pose some of the same issues as big chapter 11s. That's just wrong. I mean, anybody who's practiced in this area extensively will tell you that you can have very complicated smaller cases and that, you know, smaller cases can have issues like environmental disaster or, you know, tort claims attached to them as much as big cases. And so one of the ideas behind the status conference was to allow the parties to customize the progress of the case and the deadlines in the case to the particular needs of the case and for the court to take a pretty active role in that administration. Again, the idea was we want these things to be efficient and fast, but only so efficient and fast as fits the case, right? So a truly simple cap structure with a you know simple problem to fix might move even faster, whereas a more complicated case might move um, in a different way. And I think that a number of courts have embraced that and are actively managing cases at status conference. Uh, you know, but I think I'd love to see that become a more sort of uniform practice across the country. You know, I think the U.S. Trustee's Office did a wonderful job in creating the Subchapter 5 system and that the Sub-5 trustees were well-trained and I think are on board with the statute. I think most see their role as a you know, facilitator of reorganization. One of the things we're gonna ha- we will have to tackle moving forward is the continuation of that structure. The Sub-5 bill originally contemplated a standing Sub-5 trustee, similar to what you have in 12 and 13, right, where a person is appointed to sort of be the standing trustee in all such cases in the district and develops a particular expertise and infrastructure around those cases and, and frankly, can make a living off being just the, you know, the trustee, because we had no idea when this became effective, how many cases there would be, although we certainly expected there to be a lot, been proven to be right about that. You couldn't launch a standing trustee program without having some understanding about actual volume. And so the transition program, which I think was masterfully handled by the U.S. trustee's office, was to create pools of, you know, selected trustees who had the skill sets to be sub five trustees, right? And to have pools of trustees by district. And that has worked. Although, you know, I think because those trustees have to be compensated on a regular basis, in other words, hourly, we'll eventually have to transition to a system, I think, of standing trustees. But that's primarily for the U.S. trustees office to figure out. And they've, as I said, been doing a good job so far. So, I mean, again, if you look at sort of challenges ahead, that's certainly one coming up. Bob, last question from me. In three words, how would you describe subchapter V of the chapter 11 um, code? Remarkably successful statute, those three words, right? I mean, I think 
we had high expectations for the statute. We knew how badly it was needed and we believed it could work. But honestly, seeing how well it's worked on the ground, particularly when you go through a legislative process, lots of compromises get made. I have somewhat cheekily said to people that all the things that work in sub five, I drafted and the things that don't, I compromised on. You know, that's really not accurate, but it's, it's a nice phrase. But when you go through a legislative process, there are a number of compromises that get made. You know, you negotiate for things. You don't get perfect language in the statute. Everybody says, why did they draft it that way? Almost everything that's not drafted perfectly in a statute is because there are compromises, right? And so, and sometimes you don't always get what you want. You always have a certain level of trepidation about whether what has emerged will work as well as you hoped it would. And I would say that in the case of sub five, it's exceeded our expectations in terms of success rate. Again, I'm curious for the data on, you know, on creditor payouts and outcomes. But in terms of the, you know, what we set out to do was have a statute that debtors would choose to use that would allow companies that had the potential to be reorganized to be reorganized with the consequence that, you know, invest, uh, you know, the small businesses would be saved, jobs would be saved, and, you know, the potential that these companies have would be realized. And I think we've succeeded in that. You know, is it perfect? No. Is it way better than what we had before? Absolutely. Any final thoughts? beyond that? No, except I welcome everybody's involvement. Write your congresspeople, write your senators, let's get this thing made permanent. And, you know, obviously, as with any new statute, it can be improved over time. So I'm always anxious to hear from people about their experience with the statute, ways they think it could be tweaked. You know, this is, uh, this is a work in process. And so we, the important thing is that the work continue. Shame on me because I only found out about this recently after researching for this interview. But Reorg Research actually covers many subchapter five cases beyond the high profile Alex Jones mass tort cases. And obviously, it's a very important tool for the efficiency, sustainability, and prosperity of a significant portion of the US corporate world. So, subscribers to Reorg, please take a look. We appreciate your support. Bob, thank you so much for your insight. I've learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners will like this conversation as well. Thank you so much, and happy holidays, everyone, and goodbye for yeah. now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Turnaround Time from the Turnaround Management Association and Reorg. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe to Turnaround Time anywhere you listen to podcasts. That way, you'll always be sure to catch every episode and every conversation. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.